makes the average citizen puke. Look at this system and say, yuck, you know, what's going on? I don't know about this man, except I've read bad stuff about him. And uh, I, I don't, I don't like, you know, I don't like what I read about him. We are more than just one coin. We create the world around this coin. Come, invention, come. Evil has gone. Hello, you're listening to Grub Stakers, the podcast about billionaires. My name is Sean P. McCarthy, and I'm joined by my co-hosts Yogi Poliwool, Andy Palmer, Steve Jeffries. And so we're coming to the end of the road here. Uh, we're recording this uh, March 2nd, 2020. Tomorrow, the time that uh, we release this episode, it will be Super Tuesday in the Democratic primary. That's right. Uh, 14 U.S. states will vote. One U.S. territory, American Samoa, will mm-hmm. also be voting. And, uh, you Do- know... Democrats abroad? Yes. Democrats abroad will be voting, and uh, we will know tomorrow whether or not we get to have high, high hopes for a living. (laughs) I got high hopes right now. I don't care what happens tomorrow. (laughs) 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 It's so insane. We were saying... uh, I've become a master of my own instrument. <laughs> You're like innovating now. Yeah. We were saying we should play that song and then just have a solitary gunshot and then the music ceases immediately. Uh, because we got the news that Pete Buttigieg, of course, of the High Hopes song fame, has dropped out and endorsed Joe Biden. Aww. I'm so happy that we get to play this song for another month. <laughs> this is Biden's informal soundtrack. Riding with that. <laughs> Long live the drops, motherfuckers. <laughs> but yes, the uh, the Democratic establishment is blunting Bernie Sanders' anti-establishment momentum by having the entire Democratic establishment endorse Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we got Harry Reid endorsing Joe Biden. We got Pete Buttigieg. Amy Klobuchar has dropped out and endorsed Joe. The Klobes endorsed Joe Biden. Kelly uh, Bowles. <laughs> yes, Beto O'Rourke. <laughs> Uh, also, uh, Flava Flav. That's right. Uh, Chris <laughs> Matthews. They have everybody uh, just it's, all coming together to stop Bernie Sanders. It's devastating that now uh, now that Public Enemy fans will no longer be able to know when they're at a Public Enemy concert what time it is. <laughs> <laughs> He's become the Public Enemy. Yeah, Chuck D's like doing nine hour sets because nobody's giving him the light. <laughs> We did. They're like thrown off because there's just like way more lights in the audience from people checking their phones <laughs> to see what time it is. Uh, but yeah, so you uh, listening to this, uh, you might uh, already know what has happened with the the Super Tuesday. Mm-hmm. By uh, the way, can I just say it's already like five news cycles ago, even though it was two days ago. But can I just say that it is bullshit how Nellie Bowles wrote a hit piece about Chapo Trap House oh, yeah. without even mentioning that. She did preliminary research here in Grubstakers North. Yeah, and didn't even fucking mention us. And when she said another show that can't be named, people presumed it's come town. It might have been us. You don't know. Yeah, I do. I, I do want to uh, give a, a Nellie Bowles uh, anecdote for mm-hmm. when she was interviewing us. For the most part, it was just like a bullshit like, oh, yeah. So what brought you guys out to New York? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point, she was like, so, you know, what? What uh who are you supporting for the in the election and just 
Stephen wasn't there, but like Sean Yogi and I immediately just go Sanders, 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 and then she looked concerned. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, she she went into my room. She was like, "Can I see this room?" And I'm like, "All right, sure." <laughs> oh yeah, it was my bedroom. She wanted to see if we had bunk beds. She was like, "What is this outfit doing?" <laughs> She wanted to know. She thought we all lived there. Yeah, she was like, "How many people legally live in this space?" Mm-hmm. She was. She went into Yogi's room and took a shit and went. This is why they call me Bells. <laughs> I shit everywhere I go. That's her country. She comes grammar. in and is like, "Here, let me show you something." <laughs> That's she, what I think of you. That's what I think of all of you. This this poop distinctly smells like San Francisco oligarchy. <laughs> she, she smears all the shit that's fit to smear on Yogi's <laughs> wall. <laughs> I guess we should say Nellie Bowles is the New York Times reporter who wrote that uh, Chapo article. If we didn't mention that, and if people listening to this have no idea what the fuck we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, Apparently they use uh, violent rhetoric, uh, which just the amazing double standard of... Obama making a joke about drone striking the Jonas Brothers mm. while he was killing thousands of civilians. Really? That's fine, but a joke about guillotines is scary. But yes, uh, so, and, you know, I guess it, it has been mentioned that she's descended from California oligarch uh, wealth. Yeah, um, like agriculture, farming, landowning, San Francisco, uh, what's even... <laughs> just the, the land baron yeah i don't know family. what it was yeah. but like her family like they received like a million dollars from the valley was it yeah yeah something like that yeah mm-hmm. right her uh jack nicholson tried to stop her family in the movie chinatown <laughs> yes and that's her origin story um but yeah no i mean she seemed like a per it was actually kind of funny because like when we first talked to her we got an email and then we were like discussing it like do you think this will be a hit piece because yeah. oh, we were yeah. like, can we just like, uh, we, we'll answer written questions, but we don't really want to chat. And then she's like, nah, I'm just trying to get a sense of this. And we're like, all right, fine, we'll chat. And yeah, then, I even joked. I was like, oh, so you're doing like a hit piece on us? And she's like, no, no, it's just a profile. <laughs> no, not on you, on <laughs> Chapo Trap House. Yeah. She did that thing where she messaged me, hi, Yogi, but then added like six eyes to hi and Yogi. Oh. And I know when like a woman's trying to be flirtatious. So I threw through... I saw through that shit immediately, <laughs> and I was like, uh-uh, this lady's a fucking CIA op. Immediately, I was, I was suspect of her. Well, when she messaged me, my name on Twitter at the time was Hefty Curves Andy, so she <laughs> messaged me, hi, Curves. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> this is bringing back my memories of like thinking, why does, y- uh, why does Yogi care that she puts six eyes in the fucking thing? Because you were really animated about that. I was really that. fucking mad about this because a person that's trying to be like, hey, I want to do a profile on you, they don't come in all fucking casually like, hey, hey, what's going No, no, they're fucking business casual. They're hello. Too familiar. Yes. And my friend, I remember I, I told another guy about this, incidentally, a skinny white guy. And he was like, no, she's just being friendly. I'm like, you don't fucking know how women act when they're trying to get something from you. I do, because it doesn't happen to me nearly as much as it does to you. So, yeah, I was really thrown by that multiple eye situation. And I'm, I'm still bothered that you don't believe me about this thing. No, yeah, I get you. It is kind of funny because she also told us that I guess uh, the Red Scare ladies were bitchy to her, which at the time was like, <laughs> well, that, that's kind of fucked up with them. And then in retrospect, it's like, no, I guess they treated you the way you deserve to be treated. <laughs> <laughs> but it would have probably driven a bit of uh, anger traffic our way had we been able I to get in so there. I told so many people and it didn't happen and all of them called me a dirty fucking liar. It does kind of suck that like the only thing I've been in the New York Times for is bombing at a roast battle. <laughs> And really? I was really, really hoping to get like one for two, not garbage write-ups, but uh, no dice. Still just for that roast battle I bombed at. When was this? 
uh, whatever his face, Jason Zineman, the comedy guy at the mm-hmm. New York Times, went to a, a roast battle at the stand sure. and saw me uh, first act bomb my ass off. Oh, that's fucking great. <laughs> yeah. Who's your opponent? I, I battled Ross Parsons. It's uh, it, it is it is bittersweet uh, to I guess rail against the establishment, but deep down, kind of kind of want to have something to show your boomer parents who don't use the internet that you're not completely wasting your life over here. I mean, yeah, I was I was actually like, it, it, admittedly, we were all pretty pumped that someone from the New York Times was I- in the Grub Tower uh, talking to us, like. It was right after the Epstein episodes, so it felt uh, extra serious because it was like, oh shit, shit's yeah. fucking happening. It's too bad we didn't do our research before she got here because we could have been like, all right, turn on the mic, surprise interview about your family. So we prepared an episode about the Bowles family and we thought you could be here and just answer some questions we have. It'll be our first interview with a billionaire. Uh, but yes, yeah, so, um, you know, Nellie Bowles, a, a liberal political journalist at the New York Times writes this article against Chapo gets shared by David Frum and a bunch of other you know anti-Chapo uh, Iraq war uh, architects uh, you know uh, Max Boot another one and so you know this kind of shows you that there is a, a liberal establishment coalescing against Bernie Sanders and in this case his proxy the uh, podcast Trapo Cha- uh, Trap House um, but you know we talk about this this establishment and and what it looks like. This actually does bring us to our subject today, which is the Haas family. That's right. Uh, the Haas family um, are the uh, the owners or the primary owners of Levi Strauss Company. It's right. the jean company. And unfortunately, the last billionaire we are going to be covering that are donors of the Booty Jays campaign. Yes. For this election cycle, at least. Yes. So it's, <laughs> it's possible that they. Uh, Attended the debutante ball with Nellie Bowles in <laughs> yeah, San Francisco. That's right. That is true. Uh, there's actually a very good chance that that might have happened. Yeah, yeah, very likely. I can't believe she went to a fucking debutante ball. I, I can't believe they, they kept doing those after we abolished slavery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is the reality we live in. A person that interviewed us may most likely be connected to the billionaire's recovery to I really wish we knew that when she got... We could have just been like, so before we answer any questions... What's a debutante ball like? <laughs> and how many people on the Epstein flight logs attend them? Also, another th- uh, thing it, that uh, I noticed is that when she was interviewing us, she had clearly just been roasted by the Chapo guys for not having any student debt. Oh, right. Oh, really? Like, she was like, yeah, you know, they were saying that, you know, they pointed out that I didn't have any student debt. And I guess, um, I mean, but, you know, I'm going horse riding with Tulsi Gabbard. <laughs> Yeah, I remember that horse riding article came out. I was like, well, I'm not shocked that the equestrian article came out before us. Yeah. Uh, but the Haas family, uh, you know, uh, let's say social neighbors of Nellie Bowles and her family, <laughs> uh, the Haas family, it's interesting to, to make... come back? What? You think, think she'll come back to talk to us? We, we could send her an invite. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we've got an episode on your family queued up... Uh, <laughs> We're giving you this request for comment now <laughs> in true New York Times style. Uh, but so the Haas family, uh, they're the descendants. And I think this is important to stress. Well, first of all, we should say that uh, they are supporters of the Democratic establishment by, you know, donations and this kind of stuff. But second, I, I just wanted to say the, the family majority owns Levi Strauss, the jean, jean company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you might think, okay, so these are the def- descendants of the guy who invented denim blue jeans. Mm-mm. No, they are the descendants of the guy who met the guy who invented denim blue jeans and had money while the guy who invented denim blue jeans did not have money. <laughs> 
And this is the story of, you know, American capitalism. Yeah, a true grub streaker. Right. At least grub staker adjacent. Yeah, I mean... But, like, as about as close as you can get right. without maybe fitting the exact definition. Yeah, like, in a grub staker fashion, it's about getting, you know, funding the uh, mining... This is funding the clothes for mining. Yeah, so it's like yeah. it's grub stake adjacent is, is is the correct way to put it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and, and we'll go through the, the story in slightly more detail in a bit. But just to give you the Cliff's Notes version, um, Levi Strauss uh, moved. Uh, he, he set up a dry goods company in San Francisco around the time of the gold rush. So he was selling, you know, tents and clothing and these sorts of things. Two grub stakers. He saw children going into the mines and thought, you know what? You can use them to do work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he had a older brother. Chinese children. That had a uh, Strauss uh, goods store on the East Coast. And uh, Levi was the younger brother setting up a store on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so he would uh, import uh, you know, dry goods from his brothers on the East Coast, on, uh, on New York City. And uh, then what happened was uh, he's doing this throughout the 1850s, 1860s. But then one of the people that he's supplying cloth to actually invents the uh, denim blue jeans, uh, Jacob W. Davis. Mm -hmm. He uh, he has customer has a customer come in and say that um, my uh, he, he, he notices that the jeans keep ripping in the same place. Around like the pockets and the crotch. My balls keep popping out. <laughs> around the pockets and the crotch area, and he gets the idea to. Um, I keep getting gold on my balls. <laughs> but a customer does come in and say that my heavyset husband keeps ripping their pants. Can you make them a pants that's uh, got a stronger? I lost my life savings because I got all the gold on my balls. <laughs> um. But yeah, because of that customer saying that they needed a stronger pair of overalls, uh, that made Jacob Davis create the idea of adding rivets to a jeans. Mm-hmm. Right. So he yeah he has copper riveted jeans, and he reinforces these areas where it's most likely to rip with copper. Uh, he does this in 1871. He's selling a lot of the jeans. By 1873, he gets the idea to patent it. By the way, they took out the balls rivet. <laughs> they did. Yeah. I actually I do have an answer to that. They took out the balls ribbit in 1941 because of because of uh, war because the war. Well, they it's had to stock up on metal. <laughs> They're like, <laughs> we got to put it in the bullets. <laughs> we got to shell the Jerry's. <laughs> I'm I'm sorry, but your balls are gonna have to breathe free. <laughs> so like the early adopters of denim come back and they're like, hey man, it's still actually ripping like right down there. And he's like, I can't do anything. About that. It's scientifically impossible. Right, right. To We're deal done with this. there. Yeah. This is a bring back the balls rivet podcast. <laughs> uh, so the story about the balls rivet uh, that I heard in some YouTube video I'm spacing on, uh, basically in 1941, what would happen is cowboys would you know go out on the range mm-hmm. and it would be cold, so they would uh, set up a campfire. So they huddle you're... close together in the tent, <laughs> do some wrestling. <laughs> Wish wish they could quit each other. <laughs> wish they could quit each other. Those rivets would just pop after a couple of minutes of wrestling. They needed something stronger to to keep their <laughs> to keep their urges down. Uh, oh yeah, so it'd be cold out on the range. The cowboys would sit around the fire, and if you have these little uh, copper rivets around your balls, they get heated up very right. quickly by a campfire, <laughs> and it gets uncomfortable on yeah. your uh, nether region. So in 1941, they stopped with the balls rivets. Hot balls, basically yes. Um, <clears throat> but yes, so uh, uh, the inventor in uh, 1873, he doesn't have at the time. I love it when a topic we're covering has an actual "ow my balls" story. <laughs> 
Uh, Mr. Levi, my balls just keep getting so warm around the campfire. <laughs> and sure, my horse doesn't might want to take my pants off, but I'm just shy. But yeah, so Jacob W. Davis is the inventor of these pants. He's getting his cloth uh, and his denim, his cotton denim from Levi Strauss. In 1873, he wants to get a patent, but at the time it cost $68.00. And he does not have $68, so he writes his supplier, Levi Strauss, and says, hey, you want to go into business together? And Levi Strauss says, sure. And that's the story where you don't have to invent an idea. You just have to have money and be around somebody who invents an idea, and you're going to get the vast majority of the profits, and your heirs will today be worth, according to Forbes, about $4.7 billion. Right, and the lore that Levi Strauss created these jeans and warm is, is so far-fetched. He never would wear the jeans he created. It's so funny because I'll also see articles will describe Levi Strauss as the co-inventor of the jeans. <laughs> like, no, you just had the money. Yeah, it's, just, it's literally that meme. Like, we invented this. <laughs> I invented this. Uh, but yes, the Haas family um, uh, today, uh, Forbes puts their net worth as of the March 2019 IPO of Levi uh, Strauss Company. Puts their net worth at $4.7 billion. It's bounced around a bit since then, but 4.7 is a, a good uh, you know benchmark net worth. Right. And it should be noted that the uh, wealthiest member of the family is a, a lady named Mimi Haas. Mm-hmm. Mimi Haas estimated net worth as of March 2020 about $1.1 billion. Right. So majority of the family is millionaires, 100 millionaires, basically. Altogether, they're about $4.7 billion, but most of them just have, you know, only a few hundred million dollars <laughs> to their name. Uh, but it is just interesting that it's like this fortune that dates all the way back to the fucking San Francisco gold rush in the 1870s. You know, they just inherit it, and you just pass it down from generation to generation, and that's just the way capital works. And sh- this idea that, you know, that because Levi Strauss uh, co-created this amazing jeans company, that their his descendants and heirs and heiresses would become great benefactors and get accomplish amazing things with this wealth. And it's like, no, there's barely any information on these heirs and heiresses. Even the age of Mimi Haas is kept private from the internet. So... All of their heirs and heiresses have just become aristocratic, uh, philanthropic, uh, bullshit, multimillionaires. Uh, some of them invested in horses, but most of them probably not. And you can't find that much information on the family themselves because they've remained in uh, private isolation in their rich San Francisco lives. Yeah, you, she's only worth $1 because she spent the other $3 billion suppressing her birth date. <laughs> <laughs> but it is weird. Like You yeah. can't find her birthday or what the year she was born. Anywhere on the internet. I found that she graduated high school in 1964 Mm -hmm. and that she married her first husband in 68. But yeah, as Mimi Haas is the wealthiest member of this clan, Mm -hmm. it it is notable to look at who she supports in the political establishment. Just according to Open Secrets, Mimi Haas has made three different, uh, in 2019, she made three different $200,000 donations to PACRONIM, Mm. the super PAC run by Tara McGowan, who you might be familiar with, helped develop the disastrous app that crashed the Iowa caucuses. That's right. So the Levi Strauss heirs uh, are donating at least $600,000, just one of them, to this weird group that seems to be controlling the Democratic uh, primary in Iowa, the caucus. And this is a group that has lots of, you know, people plugged into the Obama and the Clinton campaign. So this is very clearly a person trying to peddle influence within the Democratic Party. Uh, Mimi Haas is also a maxed out Pete Buttigieg donor. 
and the fact that she is trying to peddle her influence within the Democratic Party is kind of scary because Levi Strauss, as with basically every other garment manufacturer in the U.S. and the EU, is all sorts of linked to child slavery, slavery, uh, child labor of the not slavery variety, sex abuse, sex abuse, uh, worker abuse, uh, union Still slavery, abuse. But yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know what, Stephen's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could you could say that um, you know uh, influence peddling and child slavery is in her um, <coughs> <coughs> is in <coughs> yes. oh, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, not her genes, because she married into the family. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, mind you, this is a woman that, not a direct descendant from Levi Strauss, but she yeah. married uh, her husband in 1981, and that's how she got into the family. Mm-hmm. So you know she eats bud. Just, yeah. <laughs> just fucking your way into the slavery fortune. <laughs> it's like, America is like the wire. You know, on season five, it's like, things change, but really they stay the same. Yeah. You can just marry your way into the fucking slavery fortune. And that's a good way to get ahead in this Things country. Things change, but they stay the same. But really, they weren't as good as the previous seasons. <laughs> she married uh, Peter E. Haas in 81 and until in, he died in 2005. It was her second marriage. And uh, in 2004, she would take over his uh, role at Levi Strauss. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and so we're not going to go through all the family members of the Haas family because, again, there, there are too many. And Mimi Haas is the only one whose Forbes net worth, anyways, is over a billion. That's again, right. combined, the family is about $4.7 billion net worth as of March 2019. But there's also her son, Peter Haas Jr. There's Margaret E. Haas, who's um, her stepdaughter. And there's Robert D. Haas, who's a, co- a cousin of Margaret and Peter Haas. Right. So, you know, and you can find lots of other Haases. It's spelled H-A-A-S. So if you see that name anywhere, just know you're dealing with uh, plantation money. But uh, what I wanted to mention here is just the uh, the Forbes article about the IPO, uh, the initial public offering in Levi's uh, in, ni- in March 2019. It was a public company not, that... Not plantation money, slave factory money. Okay. <laughs> Words in, matter. Come important on, distinction. Uh, so uh, in March 2019, uh, Forbes uh, wrote an article about their uh, IPO, and I just wanted to quote uh, very quickly... Plantation is pre-industrial. <laughs> the post-enclosure slavery. You are right. I should, I should uh, clarify. Uh, Forbes wrote an article about the IPO, And I wanted to quote from it. After the initial public offering, the Haas Haas family members will own 75.5% of the company's shares, and they will control 74.4% of the company's voting rights, thanks to a dual-class stock structure, according to the public filing. So why that's important is the Haas family controls 74.4% of voting rights at Levi Strauss Co. So when we talk about, you know, slavery, child abuse, union abuse, pollution, rape in the supply chain, when we talk about these things this is the strauss family running the company mm-hmm. it's it it's not even just that they're just collecting the checks and looking the other way right. they run this fucking company yeah. and you know that's very disturbing to say these are the people funding your democratic party and uh unifying with all the other uh, <laughs> patriots to stop bernie sanders Yeah, it'd be bad enough if they were merely passive owners mm-hmm. but yeah. these guys also have at least in theory complete control over to change the situation in their supply chains where they don't use slavery. Well, for, I mean, we'll talk about it in a moment, but for 30 years, they have been complicit in uh, various labor abuses and uh, slavery all over the world. And, you know, I watched, uh, like, bullshit, 
you know, Levi Jeans 501 documentary, and it was 18 minutes made by Levi's, and it's it's such a uh, made by a child slave in <laughs> South in North Korea. It was such like a uh, delusional, grandiose, the American rebel that loves the Levi Jeans. All white people, by the way, has made it a brand to be reckoned with around the world. We've never allowed slavery to profit our margins. You know, I, they just bring the the microphone to like the starving kid, and the kid's like. The fit's just so great. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, on that, actually, I kind of wanted to start with uh, a CN- uh, talking about the IPO. I wanted to play a bit of CNBC because, you know, if you watch these business networks, uh, the the fact that there's slavery in the global ch- supply chain right now shouldn't really surprise anyone. But it's, it's so internalized and ignored that, uh, let's say, our business press in particular just kind of passes over it and really even mentions it and almost in their own little language acknowledges it, but never sees anything wrong with that or anything that can be done about it. And I think for most consumers who, you know, get uh, jeans for $10 brand new, they probably just put it out of their mind. They think, I don't want to think about how this is so cheap. Mm-hmm. So on CNBC, uh, Rick uh, Helfenbein is the CEO of the American Apparel and Footwear Association. And this is the trade group that represents Levi Strauss, among others. And he's on CNBC on March 2019. This is the day of the Levi Strauss IPO that makes a bunch of money for the family. And uh, I just wanted to play, you know, about 40 seconds of his comments on CNBC and see if you can pick up maybe the coded language. Rick, we, we generally have you on to talk about all the problems that we're seeing right now. <laughs> I can do that, In too. retail and brands, not so much an IPO. Yeah, no, this is, this is really exciting. A piece of Americana. Unfortunately, it'll wait 166 years for it. But, you know, how often do you get a chance... How often do you get a chance to buy something as potent as a piece of the Statue of Liberty? I mean, think about it. A global brand represents uh, the global value chain around the world, yet everybody believes it's totally American. So this is a chance to get a piece of the rock to, to buy into Americana, no matter where it's made. And Levi makes in 25 countries. All right. <laughs> a little bit more on a couple of those countries in a bit. Yes, uh, you heard that phrase, the global value chain, which uh, when it comes to garment manufacturing is no values. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and it's like he talks about this being an American brand. And again, Le- it does go back a long time. But in 2004, Levi Strauss closed their last American factory. Mm-hmm. They totally outsource production of this. They're made in China. They're made in Lesotho. They're made in Bangladesh. They're made in Vietnam. And uh, if you want, we could spend an hour, two hours going through in detail every single child labor, slavery, abuse case against uh, Levi Strauss. And so when he says, you know, the global value chain, and he says they're not, uh, I forget the exact phrasing he just used there, but he didn't say, he said they're not made in America, but they have like American values, or this right, is like right. the Statue of Liberty and all this pretty shit. pretty sure he said everyone believes they're American. Yes. He, he basically said these fucking rubes think they're buying an American-made product because Levi Strauss is so associated with America. And I'm sure some people do buy the jeans and think I'm buying an American you product. You can't even warm your balls with them anymore. <laughs> wow. 
my my uh, wife was telling me though that her friends from Australia, when they came to the U.S., bought as many Levi's as they could because they sell them at a higher price in other countries because it is such an American icon that they can afford to sell them at an absorbent price in other countries, even though they're not even manufactured in the U.S. anymore. Mm. By the way, I think that removing the um, ball rivet is kink shaming and CBT erasure. (laughs) (laughs) Coffin ball torture. But yes, and this, you know, global value chain is such a fucking oxymoron because the thing that has happened with all U.S. manufacturing, or not all, but the vast majority of it, is it's been outsourced to countries like China where, you know, now there's just a big scandal about Uyghur Muslims have been enslaved and forced to make uh, products for Nike, among others. Levi Strauss was not explicitly named in that, but you have to imagine... But we did check. Yes, we did check. <laughs> and the thing is, those supply chains are so intertwined that just because Levi Strauss is not explicitly named as using Uyghur slave labor, that doesn't mean they are not using Uyghur slave labor. They are sourcing from China... Uh, we're a country with zero independent trade unions, so we just don't know. Right. And, you know, we'll go... Well, they don't need them because they're, ch- uh, they're, a, they're a communist nation. And, you know, we'll, we'll go through an... Exo- they study Karl Marx in schools. We'll go through in exhaustive detail all these different, uh, or at least some of these different scandals, but I guess that's just something to, to put a pin in, is that, like, this is where this money comes from. This is slavery, and, uh, you know, women in Lesotho have reported, you know, being raped, being uh, uh, their bosses demanding that they have sex with them in order right. to keep their job in a desperately poor country where you don't have a fucking choice. And it, it's just so horrifying that this is all over the fucking global supply chain. And also, if you were to just Google, say, Levi Strauss slavery, Levi slavery, you're not going to really see anything until the second or third page of uh, Google results. You can't find Mimi Haas's age. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've hidden their, their details so uh, succinctly that the labor violations are so deeply hidden as well. But the even minor details, it shouldn't matter, like a person's age or, or where they're... I, I mean... It's such horseshit how the elite have have cleaned the internet of anything and everything that they don't want the public to see. Hmm. Well, if so, if you want to get like a a, a visceral sense of what the uh, not even technically slavery conditions are in making these jeans, I highly recommend this documentary called China Blue that was on PBS, um, where they they go. It, it's uh, an investigative report inside of an actual sweatshop in China. And it's mm-hmm. not it's not technically a um a, a Levi's sweatshop, though if you uh Levi's does uh provide a list of their uh global providers mm-hmm. and out of the 25 pages in that list, uh nine of them are Chinese um <laughs> locations. Uh the Chinese ones are a little thicker, but the only other uh country with a full page is India. And so <laughs> it's they're mostly in China. And the part of what this documentary drives home is that this is uh these are these are kind of epistemic problems in all uh textile manufacturers right and so some of the the main points about these are like um uh one thing that uh is pretty common is uh that uh manufacturers will send quote-unquote inspectors uh to these to these sweatshops to um what, what they'll tell people is like, oh, these people are like, you know, making sure the conditions are humane. And then they interviewed actual workers there and they're like, yeah, we're told to lie. Yeah. Of oh, yes. Like absolutely. even to the inspectors. And then they'll say that even even though we're, they're told to lie to the inspectors, all the inspectors care about is the quality of the product. Sure. They don't give a shit about labor conditions. The only reason that the labor condition um, uh, situation is there 
it, or that that's part of it is just because of like consumer outrage. And so they kind of put on the face of like, oh, we're inspecting labor conditions when really they're just looking at the products. Um, one worker said that she was told to lie about her breaks when in reality they only get about uh, two bathroom breaks per shift. And these are like, you know, 12 to 17 hour shifts. Um, uh, she also said that she had to sign a paper saying she was paid um, 800 yen or 800 yen, uh, which is about $97 when her actual pay was 300, which is about $36. And also this is a manager. So that was actually higher than usual. Jesus. I remember like when we did the episode on Lawrence Stroll, we, we there were some labor violations with the, the sandblasting of the jeans, and it wasn't the companies Lawrence Stroll was connected to, but it was the uh, Chinese factories and the factories all around the world, but these specific cases were about the Chinese factories and how when they were making the like worn jeans, they have to blast sand, and the like microscopic particles were going into the, the bodies of these Chinese employees. Oh, yeah. And yeah. so, you know... We don't even know how fucking poisonous that's going to be for those employees. But nobody wants, you know, microscopic particles of anything inside of them that isn't supposed to be there. Well, one of the one of the managers was saying that uh, one thing she would do uh, or basically have to do is she would have a this kind of two foot long screwdriver. Mm hmm that she would use to thwack employees who were falling asleep. Oh, uh, some employees were even falling asleep with their eyes open. They were even clipping their eyes open to uh, try to stay awake. Um, there is... Uh, Your they- American Labor Party, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. These are the people who represent the unions. Uh, I just want everyone he- to know that Andy's wearing jeans right now. Uh, I'm... Listen, all of our pants. You're, if you're listening to this and you're wearing pants, this is what's happening where your pants are made. No, no. looks like you're the only one wearing jeans, Andy. I think all of ours are actually pretty humane. We have khakis. I had to get into character. Andy's wearing an old Navy shirt with an American flag on it. Andy, how could you? He's wearing a jeans jacket, too. I got it for free from my sister's family-in-law. Uh, I'm just so, imagining like the fucking 13-year-old making Andy's American flag shirt, being like, boy, I'm doing irony here, aren't I? This is pretty ironic land of the free stuff isn't it <laughs> on my 18 hour shift where they make me lie about my pay there was there was actually a great moment where they they just had like candid scenes inside the the workers dorms and on these kids also by the way they um generally they they profiled uh, uh one girl who was working there who was 17 and she was talking to a friend who also worked there who was 14 and they said that uh fake ids are very common oh sure uh, in order for kids to get jobs and of course they look the other way uh but there's one candid scene in the dorm where um they they were just joking about how fat all the people they make the jeans are. <laughs> <laughs> they're like yeah their waists are like this big and i'm like yeah yeah, I'm wearing them. You know, I've always thought about like a person in China making an XXXL shirt, just being like, "Who the fuck lives in this?" <laughs> While being fucking slapped across the head with the fucking metal screwdriver. Yeah. Uh, some other things uh, they have a two time card system, uh, the real one uh, to make sure that employees are uh, working the right times, and then the fake one for the inspectors' r- records. Oh, really? They uh, do a similar thing at Walmart. I mean, uh, when they do wage theft, they just yeah. have like fake fucking time records, well, yeah, so they, they don't have to pay you overtime. They don't. They don't pay. They they actually explicitly break um, uh, Chinese overtime laws, and if someone complains to um, management about it, what they'll do is. They'll decrease because they kind of individualize the orders that go to people who are either sewing things or cutting things. Mm-hmm. They will um, decrease the orders going to that person so that they make less money sure, at the end of sure. the day, basically to starve them. Yeah, um, they'll also 
take someone's um, first uh, first uh, paycheck at well, not paycheck. I think they pay in cash, but like their their first payment as a they'll keep it as a deposit. Oh, interesting. Uh, and only give it to someone if they're allowed to leave the factory. But since they never like grant anyone a release from the factory, most people don't get their first paycheck. <sighs> um, wow. Let's see. Uh, oh, at one point in this documentary, the uh, owner was bragging that. Uh, the factory pays workers in total for all the work that goes into one pair of jeans, mm-hmm. uh, $1. Now, this is in 2005, so I did the conversion. Um, that's $1.32 in 2020 numbers. Um, so, yeah, that's out of, you know, a uh, uh, $40 pair of jeans. The people who actually made it in total, all the work that went into that, $1 in payment. Mm-hmm. Um See, I'm sighing because when we get to the Lesotho factory, it's even more depressing <laughs> somehow. <laughs> well, like, clothes, it doesn't get better from here, people. Clothes seem like such a scam when you realize that a small and an XXL shirt all cost the same amount. Hmm. Like, in in my head, I remember when I was like, wait, shouldn't the larger one cost even slightly more? And they're like, no, no, that is how much you're being hosed in the long run. They're charging you that much for it anyway that they're like, we don't, we don't, we don't need to give a fuck yeah. about this. And this isn't even, you know, like fast fashion. Jeans are relatively, like, uh, you know, durable material. So these are, oh, these labor conditions are fucking horrific. This <laughs> is uh, this is actually a, a quote from, or this is a, a clip of the owner uh, through a translator at the factory in this in this documentary. To get workers more motivated, we educate them through slogans. We shape their basic thinking like Jesus did. And so uh, right after that, it goes to a slogan that they see. And uh, what the slogan, it, it cuts to a slogan, like some people reading it. Mm-hmm. And the, the slogan says, if you don't work hard today, you'll look hard for work tomorrow. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, and so the, some the, of the other slogans that I found were uh, had to have high, high hopes for a living. <laughs> Didn't have a dime, but I always had a vision. Always had high, high, high hopes. So well, it I, is. Man, wish, it is I, just like Manifest Destiny. <laughs> I wish we had a way to set that to music. Um, and so, so the 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 big takeaway from this, mm-hmm. uh, and the reason I'm bringing all this up, is that there's also a scene where uh, the factory owner is talking to um, a purchaser who's who's ordering the jeans from this factory. Right. And it's very clear that the person purchasing it, um, who's buying them for about. Uh, it looks like $4 a pair. Um, they're the ones who are driving down the prices. And like the factory owner is throughout this, like he's objectively evil. He's a complete piece of shit. But um, but he's not the one gouging the workers. It's the guy buying it. Is that what you're saying? Well, he's the one. He is gouging the workers. But um, I mean, for, you know, the difference between $1 and $4, right. of course, obviously the the most of that's going in is his pocket. Um, but the, uh, the fact that they're, it's driven down and causes like psychos like that to rise to the top Mm -hmm. of that system is entirely because of external pressure. Yeah. And that external pressure goes, you know, that's a direct line to corporate at Levi's. Yes. And, you know, I mean, something you were talking about just there that we should mention is, With these factories, it's entirely about Levi's just responding to public pressure and, you know, a news article being written because there are, in my opinion, very heroic human rights groups that Mm -hmm. will look at labor conditions in the third world and they'll, you know, send undercover investigators who, you know, are 
putting themselves at risk at a, of arrest or beatings or whatever else. Oh yeah, these these documentary filmmakers—they were thrown in jail. Yes. And, um, yeah, they they actually. I I mean I I do highly recommend this documentary, China Blue. Hmm. Um, yeah, and you know it's like these are very heroic people, and it's only because of these people because they will you know make a documentary or, or make a report, which uh, you know the Independent or the New York Times or whoever will write up a news article saying these people wrote a report about this, and then when it's in the New York Times or the broadcast news, Levi's has to put out a statement being like, "We had no idea. We verify all our supply chains," and so it's like whack-a-mole. Yeah. Where one of these things will come out, and you know, so again, we'll go through a few more of these stories, but these are just the ones we know about. There are hundreds of others, just horrific things that we don't know about, and it's so fucked up with Levi Strauss because these go back well, to. I, I found this um, article from the Washington Post in 1992. Mm-hmm. Uh, Levi Strauss to drop suppliers violating its workers' rights rules. <laughs> right, and that's exactly it, because it goes back to with Levi Strauss at least 1991, where mm-hmm. they get busted, you know, doing fucked up slave-like conditions to make their jeans, and then they say we're going to stop this, we're going to crack down, and then the cycle repeats every five years. Yeah. In, in some cases, which we will say, which we will go through, the same supplier, oh, yeah. where the same supplier, they're using them again 10 years later, and they get busted doing something even worse than they were doing the first time. Oh, one, one other thing, too, that was in this documentary that was uh, just a great touch is that they got the uh, factory owner on, on his own time, and he was like, I like to do calligraphy. I find that it clears the mind. And he's clearly using calligraphy to come up with his slogans, telling people to work harder. <laughs> What's the name of that dog? China Blue. Oh, that's great. Just like, he's using like like really fine parchment. Yeah, yeah. He's got this brush and he's like, you know, kind of, he's doing it meditatively, writing out the letters. This is like, perfect. He was if like... You, your your success is built on failures because you're a failure. Yeah. <laughs> now now he, he he actually just lost his job writing slogans for the Pete campaign. Oh. <laughs> uh, and with that, we're going to circle back to uh, more labor violations in just a second here. We don't want to give you too much depression all at once. We, we did think we would just spend five minutes kind of going through. Uh, briefly, the cliff note story of Levi Strauss himself, because mm-hmm. he was a real man, and his uh, his uh, his heirs are still cashing the checks that he put into circulation. Right. Um, and, you know, it's interesting where you can only really find the official biography stuff. Apparently, Levi Strauss, the factory, it was uh, based in San Francisco, mm-hmm. uh, burned down in the earthquake and fire of 1906. A lot of their records were destroyed, which very convenient. Oh, sure. Sure, Conspiracy, for... if you ask me. An earthquake caused a fire in San Francisco in 1906. What is this, a cow in Chicago? Uh, but yes. The... Actually, it was a, uh, a 6.8 quake that uh, uh, disrupted a lot of the uh, uh, early gas lines in the city. And then... <laughs> Uh, but yes, the man Levi Strauss himself. Uh, 7.2, I don't remember exactly. <laughs> the man Levi Strauss himself was born in 1829 in Bavaria, according to PBS.org. Uh, he came with his mother and three sisters at age eight, 18 to New York City in 1847. Uh, his father was a dry goods salesman, might have been abusive or might have just left the family. But for whatever reason, he just he uh, leaves Bavaria for New York City in 1847, just with his mother and three sisters. And according to uh, PBS.org, he brought as much as 100 pounds of sewing goods, blankets and kettles. And he met up his family met up with his two brothers who were already in New York City. And they set up a dry goods shop in New York City, 
basically selling things like uh, we mentioned, you know, uh, uh, clothing for right. the most part. Uh, it was a general goods store, and uh, Levi was going to set up the Strauss store on the West Coast. He was going to go west mm-hmm. and uh, take the advantage of the gold rush. Right. It was actually one of the worst natural disasters in American history. <laughs> Levi, incidentally, I found out he took a boat through Panama and then rode uh, either a donkey or took a train to the West Coast. Interesting. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Well, before the canal, because it was either that or you go all the way around. It was mm-hmm. also before the Transcontinental Railroad. That's right. Um, but yeah, so Levi Strauss, he goes to set up the family shop in Kentucky. It's, you know, it's kind of like a family business where wait, the different brothers... Wait, hold on. Yes. How how did they, um, how did they get around the continent? All around. They went around the, uh... Panama. Panama. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so it's, it's sort of like a family business where um, uh, Levi Strauss goes to Kentucky and he imports the family supplies from New York and he sells them there and, you know, his brother-in-law goes somewhere else, I think Minnesota or Montana or one of these places, sells the family supplies there. So it's, you know, I mean, it works as kind of a networked family business for a while. And then in 1853, Levi Strauss gets U.S. citizenship and he goes to San Francisco, which we mentioned earlier, coincides with uh, just about the end of the peak of the gold rush. Right. He goes out to San Francisco to sell supplies to the gold rush prospectors. Originally going out there to become a deadhead. Yes. Uh, but so, you know, uh, Strauss is... I don't o- have them on the drop board. <laughs> <laughs> Strauss is you don't o- have a 40-minute drop? <laughs> <laughs> Strauss is over there in San Francisco in 1853. Um, he's uh, selling dry goods to the man we mentioned earlier, Jacob W. Davis, uh, Davis, we, we already told the story, of course, invents the denim jeans and... Uh, Drink theory. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, let me just see, uh, just this... Um, so uh, Jacob W. Davis was kind of an itinerant tailor who uh, set up a small shop... Drink theory. Set up a small shop in Reno, Nevada, um, and he, uh, he wrote Levi Strauss a letter uh when uh, after we mentioned you know he had customers coming in very much in demand for the new kind of uh reinforced seams jeans that he had invented right specifically one woman saying that her heavyset husband needed a pair of pants that wouldn't rip on him and i want the world to know fat people getting shit done time and time again <laughs> without fat people you got nothing good in life string theory <laughs> Uh, yes, it is very much true. Um, they don't have to mention that the dude's fat, Sean. They could have just <laughs> said that a woman wanted to get a pair of jeans that don't rip on her husband. They mentioned several times, heavy set husband. Fat boys for life. <laughs> yes. My husband is so tired of people showing up and filming him for black and white comedies. <laughs> they keep filming his daily life as he falls down the staircase every morning and, and putting him in silent films. I think I think it's because his balls are too cold. <laughs> Heavy set man tries to warm balls. That was one of the earliest like black and white films. We bought your pants and then he sat by a fire and this is now the number one comedy movie in America and my husband is humiliated. Please, sir, his job of having a cannon fired into his stomach makes his pants rip every time. We need a pants that can survive a cannon to the stomach. He started rolling around trying to put off the fire on his balls, and he rolled for 15 straight minutes. And then he rolled towards the theater audience, and they ran away because they thought he was coming right at them. 
in like a, a 1950s documentary like Levi Strauss is in a lab like I've got to get I've got to find a way to channel the heat energy to the balls <laughs> faster the fabric's not cutting it you just wanted to have an all metal crotch mm-hmm. for a while mm-hmm. for the jeans <laughs> but yeah so um Jacob W. Davis, you know, and then he looks out at a ship building and they're using rivets, and he's like, "My God, that's a it. shit building? That's that's the it. rivets. There's oh, rivets. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, these copper riveted jeans that Jacob W. Davis invents, he doesn't have the money. He doesn't have the sixty-eight dollars to patent it. And then PBS.org has the quote of the letter he wrote to Levi Strauss. Uh, I'm going to quote from it. Quote, the secret of them pants, he spells pants, P-E-N-T-S, is the rivets, he spells rivets, R-I-V-I-T-S, that I put in those pockets, and I found the demand so large that I cannot make them up fast enough, unquote. Honestly, he's right. English spelling is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, so, I mean, it just kind of shows you where... Um, I guess if Levi Strauss was a total piece of shit, he probably could have just fucked this guy over completely, but he at least cut him in on some of the money, you know, 10 or 20% or whatever it was for inventing this thing. Um, and, you know, so they make these pants. Uh, they have a, a patent until, like, the 1890s, uh, and then, you know, they make the Levi's 501s in the 1890s. Uh, this is, you know, their iconic brand that they're still known for, but, you know, once their patent expires, a bunch of other competitors kind of come into the market. Yeah, and I'm not sure if this is completely correct, but I'm pretty sure that had they invented these jeans, like, I don't know, 25, 30 years later, because of the Mickey Mouse patent stuff, they could have been able to hold on to it longer. Because mm. we talk about how, because of Mickey Mouse, the patent laws changed in this country. And I think that the yeah. Levi jeans was created just slightly before all that shit happened. Yeah, it was like I a... Mean, w- I mean, by like five decades. I'm not going to pretend like it was like fucking the next day should change, but you know what I mean. Yeah, we talked about it a lot on the Disney episode, but it is pretty interesting how patent law works in this country where... Well, that was copyright law, too. Copyright law is slightly different, but oh. it's the same kind of... It's intellectual property. Right. But yeah... Gotcha. Li- yeah, yeah, you're right. It was copyright. It wasn't patent law. Mm, okay. Uh but yeah, the uh, the way copyright law anyways worked was essentially everything before 1922, I think that was the year, is in the public domain. And uh, please don't pay attention. This is right before they invented Mickey Mouse. <laughs> uh, yes. But so um, the Levi's 501s are invented in the 1890s. Uh, Levi Strauss himself dies in 1902. Uh, oh. the, uh, the San Francisco earthquake and fire that destroyed their records is in 1906. Um, they, you know, on their company history, they talk about like, they were so good to their workers that they like paid them to rebuild the factory or <laughs> something really stupid like that. Bunch uh, of mooks. But like, but I guess what I wanted to mention here uh, briefly is an important transition point in American capitalism is the transcontinental railroad. Oh yeah. There's another part in that documentary where the owner was like, the workers, they just take advantage of, like if they work past midnight, we give them a free snack. <laughs> they get half a kind bar. <laughs> but um, what I wanted to mention about the Transcontinental Railroad, and you know, it's it's something very fascinating. Where you know Noam Chomsky talks about this, or or you can even just read the words of Abraham Lincoln or newspapers from that time. There was a lot of talk about you know wage slavery and and this sort of stuff as people were being forced into working for these large corporations. Because what happened in the U.S. before the Transcontinental Railroad is every town 
would have their own artisans. There would be a guy in the town who made shoes or a person or people in the town who made pants. But once you have the Transcontinental Railroad, you can just have one company that makes pants that mm-hmm. ships them all over the United States. So you go from these companies that have, you know, 10 or 20 employees to companies that have literally thousands of employees. And this creates, you know, labor violence, modern factory conditions and wage slavery. Wow, what a proud and uh, long-standing tradition with Levi's at uh, exploiting Chinese workers. <laughs> yes, and and that's literally it. Where it's like, okay, so convenient for them that their fucking records burned down in 1906, so we can't see that they were paying, you know, half a cent to like a nine-year-old from fresh off the boat from China. Well, that wasn't mean a major national tragedy that happened in San Francisco. <laughs> yes, conspiracy. Uh, damn it, I'm calling it. Yes, they they set the fire themselves yeah. <laughs> for posterity's sake. <laughs> Yeah, everything in San Francisco was made of brick. <laughs> <laughs> they said it themselves. They blame some Chinese workers. It's all conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, yeah, so um, uh, Jacob W. Davis, he I guess he manages the San Francisco plant uh, for the family, and then he dies in 1908. Until his death, he supervised up to uh, 450 employees at Levi Strauss and Company, producing a variety of riveted denim clothing that became an industry standard. And that's from a write-up in OnlineNevada.org. But you can just imagine, at the turn of the 20th century, what supervising 450 employees looks like. Yeah. Uh, and this is, you know, again, the... You think that... You think that six-inch wrench from the Chinese factory was long? Yeah, they, theory. They uh, this was before they had regulations on the length of the wrench you were allowed to hit your employees with. The screwdriver? A uh, screwdriver. Yeah, 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 yeah. I said wrench. My bad. Yes, they uh, they reduced it down to six inches, but he had the three-foot <laughs> screwdriver. Yeah. He would just go to town on the. Uh, uh, the Chinese migrants. It's like the uh, origin of the term rule of thumb. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, it is full circle, though, because it used to be the Chinese migrants would come here to make the pants, but now we send the pants back to them to be made. <laughs> so they just can't uh, escape sweatshop <laughs> conditions. Incidentally, the, there's like a handful of Levi stores have, that have been shut down because the coronavirus. Yeah. And one of the largest Levi stores in China is in Wuhan. That's mm-hmm. right, ladies and gentlemen. The coronavirus headquarters and Levi China is all in the same town. They're like, uh, no, you, you're fine. Just get back out there. I, I think you can. Uh, I think you can crank out a few more pants in the next twelve hours. I mean, Did you guys see that the New York Post in their announcement that the first uh, case of coronavirus was found in Manhattan. They the picture that they used for it was a picture from Chinatown in Queens. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I saw that shit. <laughs> and then Fucking under the horrendous. caption it says, "On his way to work at the Levi Strauss factory." <laughs> Uh, but yeah, and you know, honestly, that's all. Just thank you, New York Post, reminding us that you're owned by Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> but like, honestly, that's really all of the Haas family biography you need to know. I mean, we can mention just with uh, Levi's jeans and denim jeans in general, they uh, spread in popularity into Europe during World War II because mm-hmm. American GIs would wear them during their casual hours oh, yeah. uh, while they were occupying the uh, the formerly fascist nations. Uh, so, you know, they spread into, and then of course there was Rebel Without a Cause, the John Wayne movies, these kind of spread them into high fashion, or I guess high fashion, yeah, because then you have the 60s, the counterculture movement, all the hippies are wearing jeans, so it is something where... even before that, like Marilyn Monroe sporting jeans, uh, women wearing pants was such a revolutionary, rebellious move for, uh, feminist ideals of that time period as well. Mm Mm-hmm. And, uh, Women wearing pants. That's why the CIA ho- hired Zoe Deschanel to <laughs> to put that revolutionary <laughs> movement to rest for good. 
Yeah. <laughs> we need a woman with bangs to fuck this shit up. The CIA is like, look, our venture capital fund has made some big investments on spring dresses. So we got to <laughs> we gotta put this pants shit to bed. Ben Gibbard's like, babe, come on. Don't work with the CIA. Sorry, Ben. <laughs> That's my Zoe Deschanel impression. <laughs> Uh, but yes, yeah, so, uh, and, and you know, that, that kind of brings you the story up to the modern day. Uh, pants have gone through various cycles, but it is important to note that uh, our denim jeans, they go in and out of fashion, you know. Uh, I think they're dying. I feel like people aren't wearing them as much as they used to. What do you think? I mean, I know Palmer's wearing one right now, so one out of four in this room is, but I do feel like the popularity of jeans is not nearly as high as it was when I was growing up. Well, that's also because you're surrounded by people who have to go to jobs now. That's fair. That's a good point. Hmm. But even and still, like though, New York jobs. Yeah, that's that's true. But even still, I, I do feel like um, when I was in high school, so like oh four to two thousand eight, jeans were fucking hot, and uh, they're not uh, nearly as hot as they used to be. But yeah, and, and so basically, that's all you really need to know about the Haas family story is that Levi Strauss, not the guy who invented the fucking pants, the guy who had the money, who met the guy who invented the pants, right. dies in 1902. He has the bulk of this pants fortune. Yeah. Uh, according to the Wikipedia, it was about $6 million in 1902, which Wikipedia says is $174 million in 2018 dollars. Damn. Uh, Yogi, I think you found a stat that said it was more than that even, but the important thing is whatever chunk of money it was, you just get your standard return on capital, even if they weren't doing, they're not doing anything with the money. It it just kind of multiplies, you know, five or 6% every year, all the way down to the present, which gives you $4.7 billion. Socialism for the rich. Yeah. And they benefit from these trends we mentioned of, you know, World War II and uh, the counterculture all wearing uh, denim jeans. Uh, but you know, so Levi Strauss himself doesn't have any children, but he gives his entire fortune to his sister. Wait, hold on. Yes. Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. Das ist mein Teil. Mine. Sorry, that's for three people who listen to this. Uh, Am I keeping that in? That's Rammstein and Hammerstein. (laughs) All right. Um, yeah, incidentally, whiskers is what they call the fraying of jeans, like on uh, like when you like bend a whole bunch. So when you said whiskers, I was like, this does actually apply to the episode. Oh, nice, nice. But so Levi Strauss doesn't have any children, but he gives his entire fortune to his sister Fanny, her husband, and their four children mm-hmm. or their kids. I think it was yeah, four nephews. Uh, and, and so you know, th- and that brings us to the modern day where you know we mentioned Mimi Strauss is uh Mimi House Mimi House excuse me mm-hmm. is the widow of um, Peter E Haas yes his uh, great grand nephew correct so she married in she married his great grand nephew which is how she got in the money and then most of or the rest of the heirs for the most part are either married in or they are descended from his nephews right and that brings you up to the present, which is basically the Haas family has done nothing with this fortune except sit on it and transition it to slavery-based. Yeah, there's a reason you know the name Levi Strauss and not Haas family. And it, it's because they don't do shit with this money. It is like kind of a going back to, to, to tradition thing, though. You know, like, this is, we have to go back because 
the fortune was built by sweatshop factory labor. Right. And then, of course, you know, with the New Deal, there was a union movement in the United States. Mm-hmm. So many of these factories unionized and there was, you know, minimum wage and 40 hour work week laws. And uh, so these factories were being built under American labor union conditions. And then they outsourced the entire supply chain. Mm-hmm. And in 2004, of course, the last American factory closed. So this American b- brand is entirely built overseas with uh, all of the global supply supply chain abuses we are so familiar with boot cut jeans with chinese characteristics <laughs> well now they're they're still innovating you know like now they got distressed jeans oh like uh distressed like the working class <laughs> yeah they, they rolled out the new brand uh that has the word sos scratched <laughs> on the levi's logo <laughs> i did i did at one point i found because like their logo is two horses and a jeans in between and the horses are pulling the jeans to show like the strength of the gene. And there was a conspiracy that Snopes had to shut down, which was that that somebody uh, there was a viral uh, like article going around. I don't even know it was an article, but it was a viral image that the logo is based on slavery torture, where they'd put a slave in between two horses oh, and no. and tear them oh, apart. And quartering. Right. And the like Snopes article is like, I mean, this isn't technically true because if it was a slave, the like the horses tied on the pants are too low. <laughs> Like, it literally went into the logo being missing. Yeah, right, like, right. So, um... That's some Neil deGrasse Tyson shit. <laughs> yeah. Well, turns out that's what was in those 1906 <laughs> records. <laughs> Snopes doesn't know for sure because they burned down the uh, factory that had the records proving it. Mm-hmm. But, um, I think to, to close out this episode, we're going to talk about uh, some of the labor and slavery Abuses that Levi's has done. Uh, one, the one of the earliest ones being in Saipan in 1991. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gap and Levi's and a few other clothing manufacturers was using Saipan to make their clothes, and they were making them work 11 hour a day, seven days a week, for as little as a dollar 65 with no overtime pay. The minimum wage in the Saipan at the time was two fifteen an hour, mm. and the reason that they were doing this in the Northern Mariana Islands is because they were allowed to claim that the goods were made in USA. Mm-hmm. And after this incident, Levi's canceled their contract. And here's the one thing that's so frustrating about the Levi Corporation and these labor violations is that after this, they created a pamphlet of a code of conduct, and people if you look at like levi's abuse they're like "Uh uh-uh in 92 they created a code of conduct that let everyone know that they won't be using sweatshop labor or abusing people and it's like yeah they did that because they got found out that they were doing that exact thing but the one thing i found that was even uh, more distressing was that in 2003 uh, there was a 20 million dollar settlement that was approved for the garment workers in saipan and gap inc and jc pennyco were going to be paying it and Levi was like, nope, we're going to keep fighting this fucking thing. We're not going to contribute to this $20 million. We're going to lawyer up and take out these fucking workers in Saipan. So this is the same place. This is the same place from they were uh, busted doing this shit in 91 and That's saying, right. now we have a code of conduct. <laughs> and so there's also just a 2015 Wall Street Journal article. And it should be mentioned that the conditions at these uh, Northern Mariana Islands mm-hmm. uh, uh, plants were described as, quote unquote, slave-like conditions. Right. Uh, they were about at least 3% of all U.S.-made Levi's jeans were being made there. And I just wanted to quote from the uh, Wall Street Journal. Um, uh, After the uh, company issued this new code of conduct, uh, Levi says it was working on the code of conduct before the incident happened. (laughs) 
So they were like, oh, we, we just hadn't, we, we were putting the finishing touches, you know, we were, we had the rough draft ready. want to get this right. Yeah. You know, you, know, you know what they definitely were working on before that came out? The denial. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they say you, uh, you write drunk, you edit sober. So we, uh, we had our no slavery code of conduct ready to go, but we were just grammar checking it. And, and then this incident came out and we had, and we put it out, but boy, ours our face. Right? But yeah, so they put out this code of conduct and then 10 years later get busted doing the same fucking thing. Uh, yeah, they, they Levi's code of conduct, stop version clothing made in Saipan in 2000. I mean, but in 2003, they're like, oh, we don't want to pay you for this lawsuit that we're clearly losing. Fucking snakes. Mm. Um, the If you want to look at it, you know, the Smith's American History Smithsonian National Museum of American History website has a, uh, uh, a JPEG of the pamphlet that was written in 91, the Terms of Engagement. And it's it's it, like every every Terms of Engagement starts with this very, very beautifully bullshit phase. We will not initiate or renew contractual relationships in countries where sourcing would have been an adverse effect on our global brand image. We will not their initiate- brand image. Yeah, yeah. Not like we're, we're fucking children are getting trafficked. <laughs> Just if it makes us look bad, we right. will not renew this. Yeah. So it's brain image, health and safety, human rights, and they <sighs> all start with we will not initiate or renew contractual relationships in locations where there is evidence that company employees or representatives would be exposed to unreasonable risks. I like how exposed is the word. Not that they're doing it hidden. They're, they're, if they're doing it, and we know yeah, about like it. First, people have to find out about it. Right. And then it can't be like, ex- if it's like not extreme, but it's still pretty bad, it's fine. Mm-hmm. And so this leads uh, me to this incident that's happening in Lesotho. Actually, before we get yeah. there, I did just want to quote. There's a 2015 Wall Street Journal article, China, Levi Strauss, and the long-simmering battle over labor rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'll just quote a little bit from it because... Uh, we mentioned, you know, this incident at the Mariana Islands in uh, 1991 is at least the first public exposure of slave-like labor conditions uh, for Levi's. So something the company has been very good at, and even today, if you Google or, or Bing or whatever Levi's, there's so much stuff about their humanitarian sourcing and supply chains. Oh, Something yeah. that they've been very good at is laundering their public image. Mm-hmm. So whenever one of these scandals comes out, they go on a full-on PR offensive, and they say, we're dealing with it, we're investigating, and they donate a bunch of money to charity. And, you know, they've actually, I know Levi Strauss, is, uh, the company has launched, like, a gun control campaign. And these other kind of, like, general liberal causes, I-, I think, you know, some LGBT supporting stuff as well because right. of their San Francisco base. Uh, they they launch these liberal causes to launder their uh, public image. Mm-hmm. By the way, I want to take any guesses on where uh, the whistleblowers in the Marianas Islands are now? <laughs> Guantanamo. Uh, yes. Uh, but so what I wanted to, to quote from this Wall Street Journal article in 2015 is that after they're busted in the uh, Marianas Island, they actually do a quote-unquote phased withdrawal of their manufacturing in China in 1993. Mm-hmm. This is, of course, after Tiananmen Square, after they just got busted with these labor conditions. Um, and then it says, uh, the Wall Street Journal says, uh, Levi still bought fabric from the country. In 1998, the year after Hong Kong reverted to China, Levi loosens its restrictions on investing in China. China's low-cost wage 
wages were a big lure too. We went back to China. Uh, we went back when China was a low-cost provider, said David Love, a Levi executive vice president. We wanted to capitalize on that. Uh, announcing the end of its ban in 1998, its ban on manufacturing in China, the company said it was confident that it can do business in China, unquote, and find and monitor, quote-unquote, responsible business allies who would comply with Levi's standards. Ugh. And, uh, you know, they also say, quote, that it will only pursue business activities in China that will allow the company to operate in a socially responsible manner, unquote. And uh, as we just played clips from that 2007 documentary, these people are fucking lying through their teeth. Yeah, of course. You know, this is all just PR speak. Um, and so there have been two major incidents that have happened in Lesotho, Africa. Uh, the first one was in 2009, and this is from uh, Dan McDougall of Times UK, and it's uh, talking about, so the Lesotho factory for uh, textiles is for Gap, Levi's, and a few other companies, but it's run by Nianxing and Formosa Textile, a Taiwanese company. And in 2009, this article was written about that they were dumping harmful chemicals, needles, and razors in a statement yesterday. Dan Hinkle's Gap Seniors Vice President of Global Responsibility said the company had ordered an investigation as soon as it learned of the allegations. Levi Strauss also sent an investigator to Lesotho said it was disturbed to see the local water is polluted. So this is what Andy was referring to a moment ago where the invest, uh, investigators go out and not to check on the actual labor violations, but to just make sure that the product is still maintaining the quality that they want. And so this was in 2009 in right. Lesotho. And we should also mention, not only were they uh, investigated, or not only were they busted dumping dangerous chemicals in 2009, this uh, Hong Kong manufacturer, uh, Ni Hsing, mm -hmm. uh, not only were they busted dumping dangerous chemicals, but they were also busted using child laborers and mistreating child laborers. That's right. Physically abusing child laborers. By the way, they uh, interviewed in this documentary one of the inspectors. It was this guy, it was this French guy, um, and he, one of the things he said is, you know, one of the most important ways to tell, you know, what, a um, what one of our partners is going to be like when we're working with these factories is, uh, where they take us out to dinner. Wow. Oh, what fucking crooks. Depressing detail from, and this is a write-up in business-humanrights.org about the 2009 bust. Mm -hmm. Because they were dumping these illegal chemicals. Uh, dangerous chemicals, they were, quote-unquote, endangering the health of the numerous children right. who prowl the landfills daily in search of used fabric which they can sell. So y you can just imagine these conditions. Yeah, from that same article in 2009, it talks about how the dark blue effluent uh, from the factory of Nianhinsing, the Taiwanese firm, was pouring into a river from which people draw water for cooking and bathing. Ugh. So people are showering and cooking <sighs> with this water that... Uh, has been po literally poisoned by uh, the the Gap factory and the Levi factory that's using this Taiwanese firm. And as fucked up as that is, you would think that, okay, well, they cleaned up their act. That was 11 years ago. They said they did an investigation, they, Yogi. What's yeah. been going on with this same supplier and this same factory in this same country of Lesotho? You on poisoned drinking water. <laughs> uh, this was from August 17, 2019 by Tobias Carroll. Uh, an inside hook. On Thursday, the Workers' Right Consortium released a report documenting the harrowing working conditions that 10,000 women encountered while working making jeans in a group of factories in Masuro. This article talks about 
Managers and supervisors forced many female workers into sexual relationships in exchange for job security or promotions, the report says. In dozens of interviews, the woman described a pattern of abuse and harassment, including inappropriate touching, sexual demands, and crude comments. When the workers objected, they faced discrimination and retaliation, the report says. The factory managers also fought union organizing, it says. Mm -hmm. While most of the employees are from Lesotho, managers were both locals and foreign. And female workers told investigators even male colleagues were molesting them. Male workers like touching females in a way that is not appropriate, one worker said. The foreign national managers slap women's buttocks and touch their breasts. They sometimes take them home for sex, another worker said. Their testimony in the report is anonymous to protect their privacy. In this report, you look at it some more, and basically the uh, women workers have essentially alluded to, like, we know this is going on, and if we stop it, we'll get fired. And so in a region where this is the only work for them, they are being sex trafficked for a job where they make jeans. So, yeah, sure, you may look hot in Levi's, but somebody's being raped so that you can look good in 501 jeans. Yeah, uh, the uh, the Workers' Rights Consortium quotes one female worker as saying, quote, all of the women in my department have slept with the supervisor. For mm-hmm. the women, this is about survival and nothing else. If you say no, you won't get the job or your contract will not be renewed. Uh, the Global Fund for Women reports that 80% of garment makers around the world are women. And something that pisses me off, uh, you know, in addition to everything else, is that these sweatshop defenders you will run into right. will occasionally make the argument that uh, if they're not in sweatshops, they'll be doing prostitution. <laughs> or if those children are not working in sweatshops, they'll be child prostitutes. Well, the fucking labor conditions in these sweatshops... It, they are forced into prostitution all the goddamn time anyways because they have no union protection. It honestly sounds worse than some of the conditions that uh, these people say they're trying to, like, allegedly escape. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean... They're trying to, they're, like, the capitalists say they're like, oh, we're lifting these people out of precarious sex work and, like, I, I don't know. That sounds worse almost. Yeah, Lastly, from this article, it talks about how the companies have manufacturing facilities in Mexico, Taiwan, and Vietnam. So, you know, this is happening in Lesotho, but there's a good chance that it's also happening in these other countries as well. And there's a uh, Fortune article that talks about how, uh, and I had to use, like, because it's in a, under a paywall, but if you click reader view quickly, you can uh, you can actually see it. And essentially, it alludes to the fact that, like, you know, well, you know, Levi Jeans has has dealt with this, but they've shaken things up in the past by making sure to inform their workers about uh, HIV and AIDS in because the, they're from San Francisco and stuff. I mean, essentially, Levi gets busted for being horrific, uh, mongering, uh, you know, dictators, basically. And when they get called out on it and they go, we'll clean this up, then they get praised for the fact that, wow, look at this company doing the right thing. I mean, it is just horseshit that... The company of Levi Jeans can profit from slavery and then act all indignant that they are doing their best to make sure these labor violations don't happen in the long run. When the reality is, for three decades, this shit's been going on. From Saipan to uh, the fucking toxic chemicals in 09 to now in 2020. I mean... These are just like the well-documented cases yeah. Yeah. of the last 30 years that we know about, mm-hmm. like that we were able to find in our research for this episode. Exactly. And, and like, you know, this episode came up originally because we wanted to do uh, booty gag uh, donors, and I found Mimi Haas, and I was like, all right, you know, we've done like seven white dudes in a row, let's do Mimi Haas. And then the more I found out she was uh, Levi, you know, heiress, I was like, oh, well, we might need more time on this one. But 
you know, we couldn't find anything on Mimi Haas. I mean, all we could find were her Jewish roots and the fact that she married someone else before marrying Peter E. Haas. But I, and other John than has that, something to say about that first thing. <laughs> but, like, other than that... We're saving the worst for last, people. <laughs> and the worst thing about Mimi... No, but, I mean, you know, it took us... Um, it, it took us digging on various search engines to find these labor violations. And they don't even have Mimi Haas's fucking age on the internet. Like, that's how fucking corrupt these pieces of shits are. Hmm. They, they, they haven't been able to completely hide their labor violations all around the world, but they have hidden the birth date of the CEO, Mimi Haas. Yeah, my favorite thing about Google is if you search any company and slavery, the first 50% of results will be that company's official <laughs> statement on slavery, which is always, we do not do slavery. Right, right. And, you know, it's not really that true all the time. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it, it's fucked up. Uh, just to mention one more thing. This is from a, uh, a, a DW.com write-up of the Workers' Rights Consortium. In Lesotho, the garment, garment manufacturing with a focus for denim export has been the largest formal, formal sector employer uh, for the last 30 years. So this is the fucking industry. And we're talking about, again, this uh, Taiwanese supplier, Ni Sing uh, Textile, uh, that in 2009 was busted. Levi Strauss said we're investigating. 2019, same fucking supplier, same fucking country, in mm-hmm. uh, worse violations. And, and this is August 2019. This is the same year as their IPO. So the family's getting rich. The family's cashing these checks. And it's, you know, these fucking poor laborers who are desperate, do not have a union, do not have rights, who are being exploited and worked to the bone and abused uh, to make these uh, these yeah. people wealthy. I, I want to directly quote that fortune.com thing that I mentioned because I kind of butchered it earlier, but this is from a direct quote from the article. It wouldn't be the first time Levi shook things up. Sustainability <laughs> has been part of their fabric since its founding in 1853, as have the progressive values that came to typify San Francisco, the city it calls home. Privately held and family-owned, Levi's was one of the first companies to desegregate factories, to embrace same-sex marriage, and to educate employees about HIV-AIDS. Mm. For years, it has worked to reduce its environmental pant print, pioneering ways to wring water and chemicals from the jeans-making process. Yes, and into the cooking and bathing of the people in Lesotho. But if there's a pin Levi Strauss wears more proudly, it's probably the one for its standard-setting role in the garment industry. The company began moving production abroad in the early 1990s, around the same time that brutal conditions in overseas sweatshops started to make headlines. In parentheses, Levi's figured in some of them due to a scandal in Saipan. This prompted the company to create a code of conduct for all its suppliers. Whether, wherever they were in the world, they would rise above weak labor laws. No! They wouldn't rise above them. They'd fucking subvert them and make people raped so that they could sell jeans on a discount. It wouldn't be the first time Levi's shook things up. Uh, after it came out that their workers were being raped, they rolled out the Dockers line. <laughs> we need like a trigger warning before this episode. Yeah, I think so. By the way, uh, I got roasted for wearing jeans. The rest of you fucks are wearing Dockers. <laughs> Uh, these are uh, Duluth Trading Co. pants. Yeah, uh, well, these are Lee's. Who gives you guys? Are, you guys are socialist. Well, you're wearing shit that was made by capitalism. Oh, so, fuck. I wrote the word "union made" on my pants, so I've got <laughs> nothing to apologize for here. Um, but look, uh, we, we've gone long enough i think uh and we could spend all day i did just want to mention respect international uh, took a look at some of their uh respect international uh respect dash international 
Uh, they took a case study in 2014 of child... Legitimate case study company, Respect International. <laughs> <laughs> they took a, a look at child labor in Bangladesh in 2014. It was a case study of Levi Strauss and company, their factory in Bangladesh. Uh, when the corporation was... Conf- I'm quoting from it. When the corporation was confronted with the problem of child slavery in its factories in Bangladesh, Levi Strauss and co. decided to continue paying the already employed children their salaries while they attended school. Ugh. After having realized the scope of the problem of child Child slavery in Bangladesh, Levi Strauss and Co. implemented a policy that required potential employees to present school certificates to certify that they were of working age. And, um, and you know, I mean, and uh, of course, you know, in, in 2012, Greenpeace named and shamed Levi's for a connection to dangerous water pollution in Mexico, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and they, of course, put out some... Uh, they put out a statement pledging to reduce the hazardous chemicals used to dye and treat their clothing. Uh, it's oh, so when Boston dyes their river green for St. <laughs> Patrick's Day, no one, no one gives a fuck. But when we turn all of the the Mexican water blue, which, by the way, that's the color water supposed to be. <laughs> they say don't trust the water in Mexico. I don't see what's wrong with putting a little food dye inside this water. <laughs> Uh, I'm quoting from goodonyou.eco. Uh, goodonyou.eco writes up a, an ethical thing on Levi's. Um, that Levi's put out a statement uh, aiming for, quote-unquote, the elimination of hazardous chemicals by 2020. And something we've talked about with the chocolate industry is they aimed aimed for the elimination of child slavery in their supply chains by 2020 and then put out a statement this year like, mm, we're not going to quite make it there. So... Uh, I'm going to guess that Levi's is not going to eliminate hazardous chemicals by this year, but we'll see. And uh, I guess the last thing I wanted to mention is uh, goodonyou.eco. That website's great, by the way. Uh, rating the uh, the ethical sta- uh, labor standards of Levi's, they rate it, quote, it's a start, unquote, <laughs> <laughs> which is apparently not their worst rating. Uh, right. But yes, they say Levi's still uh, does not pay living wages to the people making the jeans. And these are why the Ahas family is worth $4.7 billion. And you have in parentheses, it was not a start. <laughs> Just thousands of nameless workers all around the world being ground into dust. Uh, we'll never know what happens to these people. We only get little snippets here and there. The worst stuff is always going to be a secret, and it'll it'll die with these people. It'll it'll take it to their graves. And these are the people, your Democratic Party, who are trying to stop Bernie Sanders with Pete Buttigieg and Pakrenim and all of that. Well, they and, had high hopes. Yes. <laughs> So uh, we'll know by the time this episode is out, but hopefully uh, we can make a dent uh, in that Democratic establishment, and hopefully your Tuesday is super. <laughs> and with that, this has been Grub Stickers. I'm Yogi Pollywall. I'm Andy Palmer. Steve Jeffers. I'm Sean P. McCarthy. Have a super Tuesday. Bye. <laughs>